reading in uh, Luke 1, 5 to 25 this evening, and Luke 1, 26 and following. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we do rejoice in the hope that we just confessed in song in the birth and death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and his ascension on high, we need not fear the grave. What hope, Heavenly Father. What joy is ours this morning in Christ alone, who took on flesh and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for my sin. But grace is mine. Lord, we pray that this, in this hour that you would be honored in all that is said and done. That we would just not repeat these Christmas passages that we have returned to year in and year out for most of our lives. But that we would see the good God who's behind it. The God who loved us so much that you sent your only son to bear our punishment. And we would rejoice in the gospel message of Christmas even this morning. Encourage our hearts, Heavenly Father. Challenge us where we are weak. Change us for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to start with a joke this morning. And it's one that you're going to have to kind of think with me a little bit. A priest, a pastor, and a rabbit walk into a clinic to donate blood. The nurse asks the rabbit, what's your blood type? The rabbit replies, I don't know. I think I'm probably just a type O. You might have to think about that a little bit. Here's another one that might help you think about it. A priest, a minister, and a rabbit walk into a coffee shop. The barista asks the rabbit, what do you want to drink? The rabbit replies, I don't know. I think I'm only here because of autocorrect. <laughs> if you didn't get the first one, maybe that'll help you get it. If not, ask someone else who's laughing. They can explain it to you later. But as we continue our journey towards Christmas... Growing in anticipation with the saints of old for the birth of this promised serpent slayer, even as we saw last week. We come this morning to a growing but still a whispered hope in Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. Frankly, this is a passage that, as a child, I always kind of wanted to skip over. Right? You're, you're excited to get on in Luke to the birth of Jesus Christ in Luke 2. But I failed to recognize as a child the significance of Luke 1, the building toward Luke 2, the fulfilling of prophecy, the testimony of Luke 1, that God is faithful. It's a development in redemptive history that really adds to Jesus' birth and makes it all the more glorious and exciting. 
Now, I began with a joke this morning because the points of this message almost sound like a joke. As we work our way through this, we'll not be looking at a priest, a pastor, and a rabbit, but we'll be looking at a priest, an angel, and a barren woman. It almost sounds like the beginning of a joke, does it not? But as we come to Luke 1, we have a priest, an angel, and a barren woman. And they all testify to the great power and faithfulness of our God. Praise the Lord that this story is no joke. It's not a mere legend. But it is the true story of the grace of God towards undeserving sinners. A God who loves the world so much that he sent his only son. That verse that we know so well, John 3.16. That God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die for the sins of the world. For my sin, what I deserve, and for your sin. To God be the glory. So join me this morning in Luke 1.5 as we start in verses 5 to 7 with a righteous priest. A righteous priest. Luke 1, 5 to 7. The first thing you'll note as we are introduced is the time in which we find ourselves. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. You see, Luke 1 is written against the backdrop of 400 years of silence. We looked at that last week as we traced our way through the Old Testament and this growing anticipation, this growing hope. As you come to Luke 1, the last real prophetic word is found in Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. It is the promised coming of Elijah, the prophet, who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then silence. It's against this backdrop that Luke begins. And you'll note here that Luke does not begin with a bang. He begins with a whisper. We're not introduced to a king or to a mighty warrior or to Elijah himself. Rather, Luke introduces us to a faithful, normal couple. That's not what you expect, is it? After 400 years of silence, you expect to, and he's here! But it starts with this priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth. In fact, the only thing that really stands out about this couple at all is the fact that Zechariah is a priest. And not only that, but Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's family also is priestly. They have a godly heritage. Luke tells us that Zechariah is a priest after the order of Abijah. And really, that, that's, that comes out of practical need when eventually the priests had grown. There's so many priests, so they're cut down. They're ordered uh, effectively to provide service in the temple. They're divided into 24 divisions. Each division would serve in the temple for one week, twice a year. Josephus tells us that in his Antiquities. It's also seen in 1 Chronicles 24. So Zechariah is in one of these divisions. He's of the order, the division of Abijah, the eighth division that's listed in 1 Chronicles 24, 10. 
That's not all Luke says, though. Luke makes sure to mention that Elizabeth, too, is a priestly lineage. She's a daughter of Aaron. And the point is simply this, this morning, as we're introduced to this couple, that this is a couple with a godly heritage. They are blessed. But it's not just their godly heritage that sets Zachariah and Elizabeth apart. But look what verse 6 says. They were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. They come from a godly heritage, but they themselves are faithful. They're called righteous here in the passage. I think it's important for us to pause here and to note what Luke says when he says that they are righteous. In our New Testament minds, we rightfully think of righteousness in terms of uh, our, our righteous standing before God, our positional standing before God in Christ. We're familiar with this word, but here it has a slightly different meaning. In fact, Daryl Bach, in his commentary on, note, uh, on Luke, wants to make sure that we understand this term righteous correctly in this context. He says this, Righteous here is different from Paul's use of the term to refer to those who are positionally righteous before God in a passage like Romans 3, 21-31. The righteousness described here fits its pre-cross setting. It is righteousness from the perspective of God's law. In contrast to Pauline justification, righteousness here is concrete and visible and is seen in consistent acts. See, it's important to note here that Luke is not saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth are perfect we know that's not the case, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who seeks after righteousness, Isaiah tells us. They're not sinless. Rather, what Luke is saying and trying to get us to understand is that they come from a godly heritage and that they themselves are good, faithful Israelites who rightfully view the law and who strive to obey it in faith. Unlike so many of the hypocritical Israelites and even religious leaders of their day and of today. In fact, as we would say today, essentially what Luke is saying here is that Zechariah and Elizabeth are a faithful, godly couple. They're spiritually exemplary couple. They're a faithful couple. And you look at verse 7. But, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. You see, despite their godly heritage and despite their personal faithfulness, Zachariah and Elizabeth had no children. Elizabeth is barren. In fact, not only do they not have children, but all hope for children is gone. Right? As long as you're in childbearing years, there's still hope. Maybe. But it's gone. They're both advanced in years. Despite their faithfulness, this couple would have been seen as a reproach in a Jewish society that highly respected fertility and shamefully pitied the barren. Beyond an act of God himself, all hope for children is gone. And shame is here to stay for the rest of their lives. Yet Zechariah and Elizabeth go on 
faithfully. Their disappointment does not define them or hold them back. I think it's important for us to pause here and to be encouraged and challenged by Zechariah and Elizabeth's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, frustration is no excuse for unfaithfulness. Despite the private pain, despite the societal shame of barrenness, Zechariah and Elizabeth remain faithful to the Lord. Day in and day out. Year in and year out. Maybe for you it's not barrenness. Maybe it is. But maybe it's some other frustration or fear or failing that this morning is challenging your faith. It's frustrating your hope. Brothers and sisters, stand fast in the faith. Be faithful day in and day out. Be faithful in the midst of every frustration or fear. Know that God is still God. And that He is accomplishing His purpose in and through you. Even if you can't see it and even if you don't feel it. Be encouraged this morning to stand fast. Do not allow your frustration to lead to unfaithfulness. What does that say about faith? If your so-called faith is dependent on what God does for you rather than on who God is, then honestly, that's not faith. Faith that needs to be bought is not faith. True faith looks beyond circumstances to see the truth of who God is. Faith looks past temporal frustrations with eternal vision and hope. Faith in the midst of pain, faith gives perspective. Faith provides meaning. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning in the faithful example of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who though frustrated, and though viewed shamefully in their context, they stand fast, faithfully. Stand fast. So that's where we start. We're introduced to this couple. We're introduced to this faithful couple with a godly heritage. Praise the Lord. That's not all. We see a righteous priest. We secondly see a mighty angel. In verses 8 to 12, there's a troubling experience. This normal, faithful priest, Zechariah, goes about his normal responsibilities. And as we move forward in the passage, the scene shifts to the temple in Jerusalem during one of Zechariah's biannual weeks serving in the temple. Seemingly, 
By chance, Zechariah has been chosen to do the honor of giving the daily sacrifice. I say seemingly, by chance. Because even though the casting of lots here appears to be by chance, we know, according to a passage even like Proverbs 16.33, there is no chance. Only providence, only the purpose of God. In fact, this honor of going in to the holy place and giving the sacrifice, because of the large number of priests, likely every priest would have only had the chance to offer this offering one time in his life. One time. And in the Lord's perfect timing, Zechariah is chosen now. Again, think of the frustration that Zechariah must have felt over the years. We know from the passage that he's advanced in years. This is something he would have been looking forward to. This is the high point of his career as a priest going into the holy place. And year after year he goes. Twice a year he makes a journey going full of excitement. Maybe this is my year. And every year he goes back. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Every year, disappointment. How unlucky can I be? And yet it's not luck. Because God has set Zechariah apart for a purpose. His time is coming in God's perfect timing, as we'll see. Again, Daryl Bach in his commentary does an excellent job of kind of explaining to us exactly what's going on in this sacrifice. He says this, The chosen priest went into the holy place where the altar of incense, the lampstand, and the showbread were found. So this is not the Holy of Holies, which the high priest goes in once a year. Zechariah is not the high priest. This is the room before that, the holy place. Here the priest offered the incense with its sweet savor before, uh, on behalf of the people. The incense was a symbol of intercession proceeding up to God. This would happen in the morning and it would happen in the evening. Especially in the evening, the people would gather outside and they would join the priest. They would be in prayer, lifting prayers, while the priest is inside symbolically with this incense that is raising up, taking the prayers up to God. So you can imagine the seriousness of the sacrifice. I mean, imagine the weight on Zechariah's shoulders as he carries out this sacrifice. He knows that this is no light matter. I mean, every step must have been taken with care. Every moment, every action, there's purpose behind it. He's been preparing for this for his whole life. And it's in the weight of this special moment, the care of this moment, the high point of Zechariah's priestly service. We're told that Gabriel appears to Zechariah. I mean, is it really any surprise that the passage tells us that Zechariah is overcome with fear? I mean, can you imagine going through this? I mean, the weight of the nation is on your shoulders. You are, everything is purposeful. Everything is mine. Everything has meaning. 
and you get in there, and you're going about it, <laughs> there's an angel. But there's no reason to be fearful. Gabriel quickly assures him. In fact, this is an exciting message as we see in verses 13 to 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. Your prayer is heard. What prayer? That's the first question that comes to our mind. Is this the prayer represented by the sweet incense offered before the altar? The prayer of confession of the nation asking for the redemption of Israel? Is it that prayer? Or is this the prayer long past of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child? Because right? we know where this passage is going. In fact, that's where the angel goes next. That's where Gabriel goes next. You, your wife Elizabeth, will bear you a son. It seems from Zechariah, as we'll see in a little bit, from his shocked and, and almost unbelieving response, that this is not a prayer that Zechariah had been praying in the moment. This is some prayer from long ago, a prayer that he's moved beyond. It is physically impossible. That is past. Is it that prayer that is answered? I think the answer here is both. It is both the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth past prayers for a child that coincides with the coming redemption of Israel in Jesus Christ. Their child is the forerunner to Jesus Christ who is coming to answer the prayers of the nation. The answer is both. God has heard the prayers of his people. But he's also heard the heart Longing prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child. I mean, truly, this is good news. Not, not only news of, of a child, but a unique child set apart to serve the Lord. We're told that John will not drink wine or strong drink. Reminiscent of the Nazarites of the Old Testament, seen in number 6, verses 1 to 3. He is one who is set apart, totally devoted to serving the Lord. Not only will he be uniquely set apart, he is one who will be uniquely equipped, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth, even before birth. I mean, who could this child be that he is so called, uniquely set apart, and so uniquely equipped? He's the forerunner foretold in Isaiah 43, even as we read earlier. He's the answer to the closing prophecy of the Old Testament some 400 years earlier in Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. John is set apart by God to go before the coming Messiah to prepare the way to turn people. It's a word used twice in these verses. It's the idea of a, a change of direction often associated with conversion. John is to go before, to turn the hearts of the people, to prepare them for their coming promised Messiah. A remnant who is ready. 
I mean, what news? Zechariah, your prayer for a child, it's answered. You're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, but your child is the prayer to the answer, is the answer to the prayer of all of Israel since Malachi 4. He's the forerunner. I mean, imagine just the overwhelming shock, the feeling of unworthiness of this moment. God is giving you the desire of your heart. He's answering even a greater desire of your heart. Not only for a child, but for salvation. This is the one that you have looked for for over 400 years. The one who goes before the one who, born of the seed of David from the line of Judah, the family of Abraham, will crush the head of the serpent. This is the one foretold. The forerunner. Which means that Messiah is coming as well. Note the powerful sign of verses 18 to 24 then. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. Obviously, Zechariah knew how to avoid conflict. As we saw in Sunday school, he does not call his wife old. He says she is well advanced in years. He's a wise man, as we saw this morning. How can this be? How shall I know this? It's really a, a request for a sign. I need something. How can this be? It's not a shocking response from our human perspective, but it's almost funny in the context. It reminds me as I was reading this, it, it took my mind back to Acts 12 and the story of Rhoda. Do you remember that story? As the, she's a servant girl and Peter has been thrown in prison and this servant girl is gathered with other Christians in this house church and they are praying desperately for Peter to be released from prison because he is scheduled to be killed. And they're just, they're praying desperately. And what happens? Peter comes and knocks on the door, right? And Rhoda runs out and she answers it and she recognizes Peter's voice, but in her excitement, she forgets to open the door, and she runs back to the people, and she said, our prayer's been answered, Peter's here. No, that can't be. we got to get back to praying. Right? The, the very thing that they're praying for has been answered, and they can't believe it in the moment. It's so laughable that it's really a challenge to our hearts, because it's not only laughable, it's very, uh, we can identify with that, can we not? How faithless are our prayers so often. Zechariah is almost in the same boat, right? He's been praying for this for so many years. Not only for himself and Elizabeth, but even for Israel. And the answer is here, and he struggles to believe it. Zechariah's request for a sign is answered, as we see here in the passage, but the sign is also a rebuke for unbelief. The sign is that Zechariah will be deaf and dumb until the promise is fulfilled. Interestingly, there's also a purpose to this sign. Not only is it a challenge to Zechariah for his unbelief in the moment, but it serves the purpose to 
keep this to kind of a whisper. To not spread it out wide, but to keep it really kind of contained until the time is right. Until the birth of John, we see everyone rejoicing with him. But note also how Gabriel answers Zechariah's objection. Right? Zechariah says, how can this be? We're beyond childbearing years. And notice how Gabriel answers. I have come from God himself in heaven. Essentially, Gabriel's answer is Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases, Zechariah. The answer to how can this be is that God has said so. I've been sent from the very presence of God. Do you think, Zechariah, that God is unable to open the barren, aged womb of your wife? Do you think, oh man, that after being faithful to his promises for some 4,000 years, that God is now suddenly unable to keep his promise because he waited a few years too long? Because he allowed you to get too old? Do you really think that God's plan can be thwarted by your limitations? Do you really think that the God who created the universe with his word, the God who promised to crush the head of the serpent, who called out a people, who preserved the line of Messiah, the God who shook Egypt with ten plagues, freeing his people from bondage, the God who parted the seas, who caused food to rain from heaven and mountains to shake, who tore down the walls of Jericho, who held the sun still, who drove out your enemies before you, who has kept every single promise up until now. Do you really think that he cannot do this? Is there anything impossible for this God? The obvious answer is our God is able. Our God is able. To God be the glory. What a powerful answer. How can this be? Because I have come from the throne of God himself, and he has said so. As we turn to verse 21 to 25, we see now a barren woman. I guess the point should really be a no longer barren woman. But a glorious answer to prayer. It starts out in verses 21 to 22, the, the puzzling situation, right? The people are waiting for Zechariah. And he's taking longer than normal. He's lingering. And when he comes out, he can't speak. I mean, imagine that you're one of those people outside the temple and you're praying and, and you know, there's this routine every night of this priest going in and coming out. And the same thing happens. And then one night, he's taking a little extra long. And the priest who could speak when he went in comes out and he can no longer speak. He's got a look of shock on his face, most likely. I mean, something unique has happened. In fact, the people note that. They assume he's had a vision or something. Something has happened. I mean, what awe and confusion must have resulted from this unique sacrifice. I've often wondered, last week we worked our way through the Old Testament, and we got to that passage in Daniel, Daniel 70 weeks, which gives a timeline of when Messiah will come. I've often wondered how familiar they were with that. I mean, it doesn't seem from Scripture that they are looking for him, 
I mean, they're, they're looking, but not that they're expecting him right now. And yet, it seems they should have from Daniel, with the retrospect that we have looking back. But there must have been some excitement that began to spread from what's going on here. Something unique is happening. In verses 23 to 24, we have a thrilling reunion. As soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed to his own house. I imagine that Zechariah never made better time getting home than he did this time. His wife, Elizabeth, has conceived. She hid herself five months. And how eager Zechariah must have been. You see, there's no, there's no more doubt now. This time it's going to work. This time we're going to get pregnant. I know it. Imagine the confusion of Elizabeth. Zechariah comes home rejoicing and yet unable to speak. He does his best to help her to understand what has happened. Truly, Zechariah and Elizabeth have been blessed by God. Verse 25, thus the Lord has dealt with me, Elizabeth says, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth here rejoices at what God has done. He has heard the cry of his people. And he is sending a savior. But he's also heard the long past cries of my soul. He's answered their prayer. There's no more shame. Only rejoicing. you look at a passage like this, you cannot help but wonder at the frustration that Zechariah and Elizabeth must have known during those long years of barrenness. What shame did they constantly endure? Sideways glances, whispers, passive-aggressive comments. And though not necessarily shameful, not only that, on top of that, how frustrating it must have been for Zechariah to go year after year, twice a year, doing the duty of a priest, and yet never having his name called. Getting to the point where he's advanced in years and wondering, will it ever be called? And yet what Zechariah and Elizabeth could not see was that God was at work. He was not punishing them. Rather, he was saving them for a special purpose. Their childlessness was not an oversight or an accident. It had purpose in God's plan. Zechariah was not just unlucky in his temple service. He had been set apart. And his special service was being saved until the time was right. All along, God knew exactly what he was doing. Brothers and sisters, do not forget that even in the big, overarching, redemptive story of Scripture, the Lord never overlooks or loses sight of individuals. In a passage like this, the Lord fulfills his promise to national Israel 
But he also answers the desperate prayers of a single faithful family. Even today, yes, God is doing great things in our world. The church is marching on. The church is prevailing. The gospel is going forth to the ends of the earth. We rejoice as the dead are brought to life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet do not forget, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not forget that even in the big picture plan of God, He's not forgotten you and your needs and your desires. He sees you. He knows your fears and your struggles, just as he knew Zechariah and Elizabeth. Every aspect of your life is meticulously ordered by the sovereign hand of your good God and his perfect timing for your good and for his glory. Do you believe that this morning? Do you trust him? Or do you often find yourself quick to question and to doubt? Do you allow your frustrations to lead to unfaithfulness? No matter where you are and what you're going through, God has not forgotten you. Yes, he is doing big things in our world and praise the Lord for that. But in the midst of that, He's not forgotten you. He sees you. He knows your hurt, your pain, your fears, your frustrations. And he's at work even in those. So three points of application. Number one, marvel at God's provision. Marvel at God's provision. He provides not only as he promised, for Israel's need. Not only them, but, but through them, the, the world is blessed through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. He provides for our greatest need. Yet he also provides for his individual servants. He sees our great needs, and he sees our daily needs. And by the grace of God, he provides for both. Marvel at God's provision, but also rejoice in God's faithfulness. All that God has promised, God will do. We too, though we are on the other side of the incarnation, we, we still find ourselves, of the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we still find ourselves waiting, do we not, for Christ to come back. Some of the longing of the Old Testament leading up to Christ's first coming is the longing that we feel in our hearts even so. Come, Lord Jesus. And yet a passage like this reminds us that God has not forgotten his word. That he will fulfill every tiny prophecy, every word that he has said, every promise that he has made will be fulfilled as it was made. He's a faithful God. Let this passage encourage your heart and rejoice in that fact. And finally, find comfort in God's power. Don't lose hope. Be faithful in the little things. 
And don't be surprised when God does great things. Just look at the Old Testament. Look through the New Testament. Look at all that God has done for you. Look at all that God has accomplished. Will he who did not spare his own son, will he not complete what he has begun? God can do it. He sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So brothers and sisters, marvel at God's provision, rejoice in God's faithfulness, and find comfort this morning in God's power.